Our scripture reading for this morning from the Old Testament is Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10, and from the New Testament, Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 17. Isaiah 52. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, the voice of your watchmen. They lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. In Romans 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, bring Christ down. Or, who will descend into the abyss? That is, bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Father, your apostle Paul was eager to preach the gospel. Because he was not ashamed of the gospel. Because he knew that it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. My prayer is that this morning you would help us see the gospel in a new light. That we would understand it clearly and be eager to proclaim it. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Paul's heart's desire and prayer for the Israelites was not that poverty would be eliminated, nor that social justice would be established, nor that slaves would be set free. It was not that the hungry would be fed or health care would be provided for all or that abortion would be stopped. It was not that there would be racial reconciliation or that the level of lead in the water in Rome would be reduced 
or that they would care properly for their animals. No, Paul's heart's desire and what he said in chapter 9, verse 2, that he had great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart and his prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. Now, all of those other things are good things, but they are not the gospel. They flow out of the gospel. They are done by people who are transformed by the gospel. They adorn the gospel. But in our causes, we must make sure that we have a biblical and a theological priority straight. And the hot, molten core of Paul's theology and of his being and of his passion is that people might be saved. Now, what did he mean by that? Salvation is kind of a spiritual term, sort of churchy. But I think we all know exactly what the word means. For instance, those people on the board, on board of the Titanic, after it struck the iceberg, what did salvation mean for them? It meant deliverance from an ocean that was about to devour them. They knew exactly what salvation meant. And as soon as they saw the danger that was ahead, they forgot all about the trifles of life that they had just been enjoying and they focused on their salvation. Salvation means deliverance from danger. And in the book of Romans, Paul has surveyed this mass of humanity and he has announced through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that all have sinned and fallen short of the glorious standard of God. And he sees all of us human beings on a ship that is about to strike against the iceberg of God's holiness and sink. Paul's Usage of words describes what he means by this. The wrath of God, chapter 2, verse 8. His condemnation of sinners, chapter 5, verse 18. His destruction of unbelievers, chapter 9, verse 22. The death that is the wages of sin, in chapter 6, verse 23, are all ways that Paul has already described this looming danger ahead. And Paul says, because I love them. Because I love them. Because I love them. My prayer to God is that they might be saved. There are two roads of salvation in this text. One is the righteousness of works and the other is the righteousness of faith. You see, the question for today is how can they be saved? And there are only two possible answers to that question. We want to find out this morning, what is that life raft that will take us safely away from the sinking ship of sinful humanity? And what is the danger that lies ahead? Next week, Pastor Mark is going to open the scriptures to us and explain more what the Bible says about hell. But today our focus is on how can they be saved? A righteousness of works or a righteousness of faith? You see, the way that naturally suggests itself to a human being, once you hit the water, is to swim for it. When you hit the water, you immediately begin to engage your arms and your legs to try to save yourself. And this is the righteousness of works, or as it says in verse 5, the righteousness of the law. This is the path the Jews were on. They worked hard at it. They were zealous for God. Look back at 
Verse 2 of chapter 10, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. But they tried to establish their own righteousness and it didn't work. Look back at chapter 9, verse 31. That Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They have tried this path already and it's a dead end street. The path of salvation by works. Why? Verse 32. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. The righteousness of works can never succeed because works don't take care of the bad things that we've done. And every one of us has sinned. Even the best of us has violated God's law in at least one point. And therefore, James 2.10 says we're guilty as if we had broken the whole law. The ship is going down. By the works of the law, it says in Romans 3.20, no human being will be justified in his sight. We cannot do enough to make up for the bad that we've done. Now, the righteousness of works is not a bad idea. In fact, the law is good and it was given by God. Look at verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them, quoting Leviticus 18.5. It's written in the Bible that if you can do this, you will be saved. There's only one tiny little problem with that. It would be like trying to swim 400 miles in the cold Atlantic Ocean to Newfoundland. And if you could have done that, you would have saved yourself from the sinking of the Titanic. What's the problem? Well, within 15 minutes, if the sharks hadn't gotten you, hypothermia would set in and you would very shortly be on your way down to Davy Jones' locker. You cannot do it. Now, this is a hard road, but it's the road that all the religions of the world try. A missionary in South America climbed to the top of a tall mountain on which was a Roman Catholic shrine and There he met a woman whose knees were bleeding and he asked her what had happened. And she said, I have climbed every step to the top of this mountain on my knees in order to find favor with God. I've known Muslims who have a callus on their forehead. Do you know what that's from? It's because they believe in a righteousness of works. And some individuals pray so often And they bow down with their heads touching the ground so frequently that they build up a callus on their forehead. This is a hard road, my friends. Some Hindus starve themselves so as to try to release themselves from the endless cycle of rebirth that they think they're trapped in. This is a hard road. They're swimming for all their worth, but not one of them is going to make it. They will not succeed, just like the Jews did not. For you see, what is hard is impossible. Does this describe you this morning? You know you've messed up. You know you're in big trouble. So you're trying to do some good stuff to kind of cover your tracks and and make sure you get in at the end. Let me just assure you this morning, I'm sure that you have not done as much as the Jews did in their religious passion. And God's word is the same to you this morning as it was to the Jews. You will not succeed in the righteousness of works because you are a sinner. But there is a second path, not as obvious. In fact, it's counterintuitive. It's a path that's obscured by the bushes and the trees of human wisdom and worldly religion. 
This is the path over which the Jews stumbled, 932. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. This is a righteousness which comes from God. And the great irony is that this is not a righteousness that is that hard to obtain. Because someone else has already done the heavy lifting. That's Paul's point in verses 6 and 7. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. You see, this salvation is not something so remote and inaccessible that only the most determined among us can find it. And then in verse 7 he says, Who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. This gift of salvation is not something that is so buried deep in the earth that you have to dig for it and only a few people find it. No, he's saying this salvation is near you. Verse 8, the word is near you in your heart and in your mouth. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. This righteousness has already come down from heaven in the form of Jesus Christ. It has been raised up from the dead as Jesus rose from the dead. And now it is as near to us as our mouths and our hearts. How does that work? Paul summarizes what he's been teaching for several chapters in verses 3 and 4. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The righteousness that comes by faith is from God and it is through Christ because Christ fulfilled the law. He completed it. He finished it. He dispensed with it in this sense that the law's purpose was to show us how badly we need a savior. The law is there to show us that we cannot. And when we see that Christ can, and when we throw ourselves in faith on him, then the law is no longer needed. And it peels away like a banana skin because we've got the real banana. That's what Paul is saying. The righteousness by faith is. The Lamb of God was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds, we have been healed. You see, He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that in Him, we might become what? The righteousness of God. And for Paul, righteousness means salvation. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. But notice, it is not a blank pardon for all of humanity. There is a condition. Now think about this for a minute. Not everybody on Titanic was automatically saved just because there were lifeboats, were they? What what did they have to do to be saved? It's kind of obvious. They had to get in the lifeboat. Now, if you would talk to any of them after that incident of the survivors, they would not, one of them have said, We saved ourselves. What was it that saved them? It was the lifeboat that took them away from the impending disaster. But they had to, by faith, get into that lifeboat. And that's what Paul is saying in verse 9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, what is possible, what Christ made possible, is actually easy. What you have to do simply is confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he will be your master. You have to believe in your heart that 
He died for your sins and that God raised him again from the dead. And the promise is very clear and simple. You will be saved if you do that. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 11 describes a really beautiful thing about this salvation. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. This salvation shows no favoritism, no distinctions. A survey of those who perished in Titanic indicated that those in first class were three times more likely to survive than those in second and third class. Not so with the gospel. It is available for everyone. But it takes faith. Titanic had lifeboats on it with seats for 1,178 people per regulations at the time. The only problem is there were 2,223 people on board. There was not enough room for everybody in the lifeboats. That is not the case with Jesus Christ. The text says there's room for everybody. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's what faith involves. Even though there were spots on the lifeboats for 1,178 people, only 706 people survived. Do you know why? Well, the Titanic was built to flood equally so that it did not list as it was going down. And the electrical power plant kept running until the very end. And here's what Wikipedia says about the sinking Hence, Titanic showed no outward signs of being in imminent danger. And passengers were reluctant to leave the apparent safety of the ship to board small lifeboats. What a picture of the gospel. Lifeboat number seven launched first with only 28 people aboard, despite its capacity of 65. You see, it does take a leap of faith. And if you're here today thinking that you're on this great big ship that is not likely to sink. And if you're looking at what you know of Christ and he looks like a little lifeboat that has less chance of surviving than your great big ship. Let me assure you from scripture today that you're not on a great big boat at all. You're on a little tiny dinghy and it's about to get smashed to smithereens against the holiness of the iceberg of God's justice. And Christ Christ is no mere lifeboat. Christ is a battleship. In fact, Christ is a battleship who stretches from shore to shore. He can never be sunk. And if by faith you will leap into his arms, the text says you will be saved. This is the glory, my friends, of the gospel and the glory of Christ, our Savior, that he is a more than sufficient Savior for every one of us. No matter what we have done, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. What a great salvation he offers us. How can we escape if we neglect it? So at the end of verse 13, we are all cozy in our Jesus lifeboat. We're making our way away from the impending destruction. And that would be a good place for the book of Romans to stop, wouldn't it? There's only one small matter left and that is this the people on the other side of the boat don't even know about the lifeboat now think for a minute if you were on titanic and you had never even heard of a lifeboat you never you didn't know that there were any on board you had no you'd never seen them 
When the ship began to sink, what would you first think of? You would not think, I need to get a lifeboat. You would think, I'm going to have to swim a long way before I survive. And that's Paul's point in verse 14 and verse 15. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The logic is inescapable. You have to believe in order to call. You have to hear to believe. And someone has to tell you in order for you to hear. You see, people aren't saved just because Jesus died for the sins of the world. They have to know that he died so that they can believe and receive the righteousness that is by faith. Now, we understand this in the physical world. The, the, the word that Carl Henry said, he said that the gospel is good news only if it gets there in time. And we understand exactly what that means. Let me ask you, for instance, have you had your children vaccinated for polio? Have you? You, you have. All of you have, because it's a law. Now, I was expecting a little more response from the, the mothers here, because dads kind of forget this sort of stuff. But, but moms take care of all that when the kids are little and you have to... Yeah, you, you've had them vaccinated. And why? Did you wake up one morning and think, oh, there's this awful disaster out there called polio, and there must be a cure for it, so I'm going to ask around till I find it, and then I'm going to get my child vaccinated. No, that's not how it worked. You know how it worked? You heard about the dangers of polio. You heard from your doctor that there was a vaccine and you also heard there was a law saying you have to have your kid vaccinated. You see, it was because you heard that you knew that you acted and you saved your children from the effects of polio. But do you know that for thousands of years, children suffered from the effects of polio? Until in 1955, Jonas Salk developed a vaccine that was effective in preventing polio. But here's something you maybe didn't know. For the next 30 years, the incidence of polio in the world did not significantly decrease. Why? They didn't know about it. Mainly in the developing world, it didn't do them any good at all that we in the West had discovered this vaccine, that we were taking care of our children. The fact that a cure was available did not help them until what? Until they heard about it and acted on it in faith and got the vaccine. And so the World Health Organization in 1988 developed an initiative with a goal to eradicate polio in the world by the year 2000. This is an amazing story. In 1988, there were 350,000 new incidents of polio around the world. But after the WHO did their program, by the year 2000, there were only 430 new cases of polio around the world. Only four countries left that had any polio in them. 99.9% .9 reduction in the incidence of polio. And my question is this. Why can a group of determined people eradicate the effects of polio all around the world in 13 years when we can't do the same with the message of eternal salvation? Let me show you a map. This is not the polio map. This is the ignorance of the gospel map. 
Those in the red areas represent people that today do not know that there is a vaccination available for their sin. One third of the world, 2.7 billion people yet today could not call on Christ because they'd never heard of him. We've done a better job wiping out polio than we have ignorance of the gospel. The World Health Organization has put the church to shame. And throw in the fact that Jesus, to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given, has promised to be with us to the ends of the earth. Throw in the fact that we have received all power from the Holy Spirit to accomplish this task that he's given us. And it becomes an even more awkward question to ask. Well, maybe here's what you're thinking. You know, polio strikes wherever, but, but maybe that... What about that innocent man in the middle of Africa who has never heard about Jesus Christ? Surely God is going to let him get into heaven, right? Because he's never heard. Well, as I heard David Platt share in a sermon just a week ago, yes, that man will go to heaven. The only problem is that man doesn't exist. See, I said the word innocent man in Africa. There is no innocent man, woman, and child On the face of the earth. Paul has already made this clear in the book of Romans. In chapter 1 he said that they are all without excuse. Because they know the existence and the power of God. He said in chapter 2 that they are all guilty. Because every one of us has. Even though we might not have read the Bible. We have a law written in our hearts. And we have violated that law. And so all of us all around the world. Have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way out of that. That the scripture assures us of is to have faith in Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, this is the righteousness that is by faith. It is easy, but it's impossible unless you've heard about it. This is why verse 15 says, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. The one who announced to the Jews that King Cyrus had now changed his mind and was allowing the Israelites to be released from their captivity and to to go home again in freedom. The one who brought that news, Isaiah says, has beautiful feet because this is a beautiful message. And so those who take the message of freedom from the bondage and the destruction of sin are beautiful people doing a beautiful task. I wanted you to meet Derek Joseph, who along with his wife Lacey, are beautiful not because God made them that way, but because they have committed their lives to take this beautiful message to people in East Asia who right now are depending on a righteousness of works. And Derek and his wife are going to tell them about the righteousness that is by faith. Derek, why are you going to do that? Well, it's always been a given for me that people need to hear to believe and believe to be saved. And even as a young person, I made it my aim to talk about Jesus with people as much as possible as a result. And then I learned some things that really threw me for a loop. Namely, that out of 16,000 of the world's unique individual people groups, more than 6,000 of them don't have any presence of the proclamation of the gospel. And that means that more than 40% of the world's population has no idea how to be rescued from eternity in hell, and has no idea how they can spend eternal life with Jesus, our Messiah. 
And I looked at what we've got here, and I looked at the fact that they've got no gospel presence there, and I said to myself, that's dumb. We've got to do something about that. And now I know God is sovereign, and ultimately and eventually he will have worship and worshipers from each one of those 6,000 tongues, tribes, peoples, and nations. And he'll do it through preachers. And as we looked at the priorities of God in Scripture and the commands of God in Scripture and the promises of God in Scripture, and as I examined my own motives and my own heart, I saw, you know what? I don't really have a good, holy, pure reason to stay. And I've got a really good reason to go. So God willing, in a few months, Lacey and I will. Thanks, Derek. So, what about you? Or is this the part in class where you kind of slink down in your chair, you try to hide behind the person in front of you so that the teacher doesn't call on you? And when a nerdy student like Derek raises his hand, (laughs) says, teacher, I know the answer to that. You're not nerdy, by the way, Derek. What do you say? You go, yes. I'm off the hook because... He's answering that for me. If, if that's your picture of what's happening here, you, you don't have it yet. That's not it at all. It is not that Derek and Lacey and our other missionaries have drawn the short straw. No, this is a better picture. We are a team of redeemed people. Those who have received the righteousness that is by faith are now a team to whom our coach has given an assignment. And the job is to take this message now to the very ends of the earth. We're all going to have different roles in that, just as different members of a team have different roles. And what you need to do is find out what your specific role is on the team as we pull together to go around to the other side of the ship and tell people there about the lifeboat. There are two issues here. The first is, do you care? Or if you're really honest this morning, do you care more about yourself than the 2.7 billion? What would an audit of your time and your checkbook prove? That in reality you are more interested in things that may not be bad in and of themselves. Things like fantasy football. Things like Nordstrom Rack. Things like eating at the latest restaurant. Having more horsepower in your car. Or even simply having your daily caramel mocha latte than you are in those who are on the other side of the ship about ready to go down without a single lifeboat in sight. The student volunteer movement had a convention in 1898 and the speaker said the person who doesn't believe in taking the message of Jesus Christ to the nations in the end does not believe in Jesus Christ. No interest in missions means no interest for that particular thing for which Jesus was content to be born and to live and to die. David Platt in the book of the, of the conference, Radical Together, and there are still plenty of these available out in the resource center that direction for $5. We would encourage each one of you to pick this up and, and read it and help you work through these issues for yourself. There's also a, a study of this book that will begin immediately after Reach is over and you can sign up for that at the resource table. But David Platt says he has seen many churches who have the trappings of church. The only thing missing is the heart of Christ. And what is the heart of Christ? 
It is to seek and save the lost. Luke 19.10. So if you don't care about that, you don't know the Jesus of the Bible. You see, it was not that Paul had drawn the short straw. It was his grasp of theology that propelled him to do what he did with his whole life. And the only enduring motivation for missions is a deep theology. And a deep theology combined with the love of the Holy Spirit is going to produce a passion in us that will bubble over in a multitude of ways as we work together as a team to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. You see, when we understand that what is hard is impossible, that people are bound in systems that are not going to deliver them, when we understand that what is possible because of Christ is easy, all they have to do is hear and have faith. And yet when we understand that what is easy is impossible unless they hear, God is going to stir in us and get us involved. And if you find yourself unmoved this morning by the plight of those who have never heard, let me suggest that you need either a deeper theology or a greater love. But the second issue is what you actually do for the lost. Because concern alone is not enough. And you might be saying, Nate, in the last 20 minutes you've made me feel pretty bad. And that's my contribution to the cause. <laughs> but you know as well as I do that after lunch at O'Charlie's and with the remote in your hand this afternoon, somewhere after, shortly after the first quarter, that feeling is going to go away. And will that feeling bad have helped anybody hear about Jesus Christ for the first time? No, it won't. Many of you are involved in ways inside and outside the church already, and I commend you for what you're doing. I want to encourage you as well with what the church is doing and things that you were a part of already, even though you didn't maybe know it. Did you know that 9% of everything that comes into the general fund goes into the overseas outreach fund? And, and from that, we help these partnerships. We help support our missionaries. And so you're involved in this already, even though you didn't know it. Good job. But I think you might be able to do some more. And I just wanted to paint real quickly a picture of how we do missions here at College Park Church. We have a laser focus on the unreached peoples. That 2.7 billion is our main target. That is our sweet spot. We have these eight partnerships that you've seen, each one of which is involved in taking the gospel in some way or other to those who have never heard. We have 26 missionaries that we support and we're adding two more this year. People that are being sent out from our body, from our congregation, by the Holy Spirit to do this job. We support them at about 20% of their need and the rest of that money needs to come from you guys as a part of their church. We use vision trips to support both of these wheels of missions activities. We send short-term teams to go and help our partnerships and to encourage our missionaries. And you'll hear more about those next week. But what I want you to think about today is what is your role in this whole process in addition to the things that I've already talked about? Well, we're not quite done with the passage. Now, some of you are going to go as goers and the Holy Spirit of God may be moving on your heart today through his word and by his spirit, moving to release you from where you are here and to thrust you out into the nations, to the ends of the earth. And if God is doing that, I encourage you to talk to me and get plugged into what we're doing as a church to prepare this group of people who's going. 
We have a gym night, Journey and Missions, once a month where we meet and have training and encouragement. And we'd love to plug you into that. If God is doing something that he did in Hudson Taylor's heart, in your heart, when Hudson Taylor said, if it had not been for the fact of the Chinese being lost and needing Christ, I never would have thought of going to China. But if that is gripping you today and the Spirit is speaking to you, talk to me. Let's get connected. We'll see how God might be leading. But there is another role as well that might be perfectly within God's will for you. And that's in verse 15. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? What does that mean? I think it means sent by God to be sure. Because he's the one who leads us and equips us for ministry. But it also means being sent by human beings, by a church. Paul himself needed to be sent in order for him to do the task that God had given him. In fact, that's one of the reasons why he wrote the whole book of Romans. You maybe didn't know that. This is the mother of all missionary prayer letters. Paul has laid a theological foundation that we've just briefly described today so that when he went to Rome, they would help him on his way. Paul had his sights fixed on Spain, which for him was the ends of the earth at that time. He was planning to go there. And he said in chapter 15, verse 24, on my way to Spain, I'm going to stop in in Rome and have you help me along my way. And he used a Greek word there, propempo, which everybody understood perfectly what it meant. It meant to assist a traveler in any way necessary so that they can reach their objective and accomplish their goal. It meant giving them supplies and food and finances and things they needed for the journey. It even meant walking two or three miles with them to outside of the city to encourage them as they embarked on this task. And Paul said, I am going to preach to those in Spain, but in order for me to do that, I need a sender. I need you in Rome to be behind me and sending me to do that. Otherwise, I can't do it. Well, here's what sending might look like for you who in the perfect will of God might never leave the cozy confines of karma in your life. But still, you're on the team and you need to be involved in sending. And here's how that might look like. First, releasing. See, as long as we do this with our life and our stuff, we can't send in any significant way. What God wants us to do as senders is to release our hearts, to release our dreams, to release our stuff, to release our friends, even to release our children so that we can be significantly involved in this task. Secondly, sending means connecting. You've got to get to know some of these partnerships and some of these missionaries. Find out what their passion is. Find out what they're doing so that you can encourage them along the way. We've recently started Barnabas teams for each one of our missionaries. That's simply a group of people that meets once a month to pray for current needs for that specific missionary. We have a prayer time the first of the month called First Fridays. You see, because I need help sending I need help praying because I don't gravitate to that naturally. So we have a time once a month and we'd invite each of you to it this coming Friday at the ministry center at six o'clock for a quick dinner. And then we're going to be praying for our missionaries as as a church, we continue to be involved in the sending of them by praying for them. Come next Friday if you're able. And finally, sending will involve supporting. Again, Platt and Radical together says how prone we are to give our resources to good things while ignoring great needs. 
See, we need a biblical priority in our mind, in our giving as well. He goes on to say that 2.5% of North American Christians' income is given to the church. And of that, 2% goes for overseas missions work. That means that for every $100 that the average American Christian earns, 5 cents goes to accomplish this task. Platt's words are, that does not make sense. So as a sender, can you do more financially? If you are a follower of Jesus today, if you have grasped Romans 10 in your mind and in your soul, and if you have the love of God in your heart, you just have two choices today. You can be a zealous goer or a zealous sender. Anything else is disobedience. How can they be saved? By hearing through a preacher sent by a church the word of Christ that can produce faith, that brings righteousness, that leads to salvation. From the bridge of Titanic, the lights of a nearby vessel could be seen off on the port side. The SS American had stopped for the night because of ice, and they also saw lights in the distance as the Titanic approached. The wireless operator of the American, before he went off duty at 2,300 hours, tried to contact Titanic and warn them that there was ice ahead. Occupied by sending backlogged passenger messages, Jack Phillips, the wireless operator on Titanic, fired off an angry response to the American. And here's what his words were. I am busy. I am busy. Shut up. I'm busy talking to Newfoundland. And I wonder today if we are too busy with trifles to help save a world from eternal destruction. Let's pray. Oh, Father, forgive us for either not understanding properly or not caring enough. We are caught up in the busyness of life. We really don't do that much so that those who have never heard might hear the very first time about Jesus. Father, would you do your work in each of our hearts today? I don't know what the answer is for each individual, but would your spirit speak? Would you stir us up to be committed to the gospel of Christ? Let me invite you, if you are here today and if you are still on that path of a righteousness by works and would love to stop doing what's impossible and come to what's easy, what's available in Christ. We have some people at the front that would love to talk to you and share with you in more detail how you might be saved today. And if God is touching your heart to be more involved in his global cause, see me and get connected with the events of this next two weeks. God, our desire is that you would take all that we are and have because you have freely redeemed us by your grace and use us so that the rest of the passengers on the ship of humanity might hear of the lifeboat of Jesus Christ and be saved for all eternity. We ask it for their enjoyment and for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.
Go and be the light and salt of Jesus in the world. Amen.